We're continuing in our, in our series on the book of Mark, and as Dave has been unpacking over the last few weeks, one of the themes of the book of Mark is this idea of the in-breaking kingdom of God, that Jesus shows up and he brings the things of the king into the space that he's in. Heaven breaks in to earth. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to just talk about the in-breaking kingdom. I don't want to just sing about it. I want to experience it. Does anybody else feel that way? Amen. Well, you are in the right place. God is doing something, and I'm so excited to dig in with you. So if you have a Bible, there's one right in front of you in the pew. It's going to be up on the screen as well. We're going to be in Mark 1, verse 35 to 45. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are just so honored that you are in this space with us today. We are so expectant of what it is that you want to do, and we want to give you full permission. And Jesus, I ask that you would bind up the demonic powers and principalities that would want to be at work in this place and we silence them in the name of Jesus. And instead, we invite your spirit to come, the one who breaks strongholds, heals the sick, raises the dead, binds up the brokenhearted, delivers us from anxiety and depression. That's the spirit that we want in this place today and we welcome you and we thank you, Jesus, that you are here. We pray this in your name, amen. Well, we pick up the story in the book of Mark this morning, and there's been so much going on. I mean, Jesus has kind of broken into the scene, and he is getting famous around town. We see that he has been baptized. We see that he has delivered someone from a demon. Then he's ended up in a town, and everyone's come to him for healing. There is so much going on. And that is kind of the book of Mark. I mean, he's moving so quickly. It's like one story after another story after another story. In fact, that word immediately comes up about 40 times in Mark's book. I mean, he's moving us along from one action scene to the next action scene, almost challenging us, can you keep up? Can you keep up with how much kingdom is coming into this space? So the pace of the book is very, very fast. And because Mark is taking us somewhere specific, he's taking us to the cross, 
For Mark, the Messiah, Jesus can only be fully and rightly known through the lens of the cross. So he's moving the story on. It's almost like, how fast can we get there to get to this climax? And then when he gets to chapter 16, which is the end of his book, Jesus dies, he resurrects. There's kind of a little bit of story, and boom, he is done. It's like, I told you what I came to tell you. It's all about the cross. If you read through the other Gospels, you're going to see, especially in Luke and John, there's a lot more story about the Emmaus Road and restoration of Peter and all that stuff. Mark doesn't care. He's like, I'm going to the cross, and it's all about the cross. This is how you know the Messiah is through the cross. So then we stumble upon this verse, verse 35, that says very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. A sudden change of pace here for Mark. I mean, why? We're moving, 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 and suddenly we hear about Jesus' quiet time. I mean, who cares? Who really cares? Tell me another demon story. Tell me another like, story of healing and power. Like, Why do we care that Jesus has gone off to this quiet place to pray? And anytime we notice that shift of pace in Scripture, we need to pause and say, why did Mark even mention this? I mean, why is this important in his book? Jesus is only recorded praying three times in the book of Mark. Now, we know that he prayed a lot more than that, but Mark only records it three times. Every single one of those times happens at night, happens in a remote place, and it happens when activity is pressing around Jesus. There is pressure, there is resistance. And in those kinds of moments, we find that Jesus goes to prayer. This phrase, solitary place, is actually the same Greek word for wilderness. Now that's already familiar to us, even just in the book of Mark. Mark has mentioned Jesus going into the wilderness. Of course, we all know that story. Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tested by the devil and comes out victorious. It's also been mentioned at the very beginning of the book when we read about John the Baptist, this strange prophet that kind of hangs out in the wilderness, declaring words from Isaiah and calling people to repentance. You see, strange prophetic things happen in the wilderness. But for the Jewish reader, it also would have caught their attention because a significant part of their story is, of course, their time in the wilderness after God sends Moses into Egypt, pulls them out of slavery, out of oppression, to bring them into the promised land, to bring them into their destiny, to bring them into their new identity as children of God. And they have this season in the wilderness, which, of course, they did not like, because they were fully dependent on God. I mean, they had, to, they had to trust God to even drop food from the sky, manna from heaven for them. You see, the wilderness is also a place of learning dependence on God. We don't really like being dependent, do we? We don't really like those wilderness seasons. Those of you that heard me preach in August, you know that I shared a little bit of my own personal story of stepping out of ministry leadership at Because Justice Matters and entering into a sabbatical and not really knowing what's next for my life. And I would kind of like to get stuck into something, put my effort to something, but God's like, no, I want you to wait on me. 
I want you to trust me. And I don't really like that because maybe you can relate, but I like to be in charge of my own life. I like to be in control. I like to call the shots. I like to make decisions and get things moving. And God's just like, no, I just want you to sit and I want you to wait. And that has been hard. I mean, there are some things about being on sabbatical that are amazing. I've had more 11 a.m. brunch than I've like ever had. It's amazing. But it's also incredibly lonely at times. My God, what are you doing? I don't understand. Trust me. Awesome, but I can't see where I'm going. I don't know what's happening. Trust me. A couple of weeks ago, I was having a quiet time, and I like to get up in the morning before my house is awake and just kind of pacing in my living room, and I was frustrated. And I said, God, I don't like this kind of wilderness season that you have me in where I'm having to be dependent on you. Can I just be real? I don't like to be dependent on God. And I found these words came out of my mouth. God, I feel like you don't care about me. Because when we're in the wilderness and we're trusting God to drop the manna from the sky, to guide us on the way, there is a temptation to feel forgotten. There is a temptation to wonder, will God really keep coming through? I mean, is he really trustworthy? And so there are low moments like that where we think, oh God, I don't know if you care. And I heard these words in my heart immediately afterwards. I heard, Ruthie, I took my son into the wilderness. And I was like, oh. You see, sometimes we think that place of being desperate for God is somehow a bad place to be in, a punishment. But what God's doing is he's teaching us to depend on him. And you see, Jesus came to earth fully human. And so he had to depend on his father. And that's what's happening here in this solitary place. Jesus is leaning into his father, surrendering, depending on him, because Jesus knew that his authority, power, and clarity of mission came from dependence upon God. See, Jesus could have just done his own thing. I mean, he's like superpowers, right? Like baptized, cool, God, you're proud of me. Peace out, I got it from here. I got this covered, I know what I need to do, I've got all the power and the authority, but he didn't live that way. He lived surrendered in intimacy with his father. Luke 5, 16 says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. Now, I know that introverts in here are like, well, that's because Jesus was an introvert. Whatever, I don't know that. But we know that he withdrew to lonely places to be with his father often. And John, he says, I do what I see my father doing. That's what I do. I'm, just, I'm not out here on my own doing my own thing in self-sufficiency. I do what I see my father doing. You see, Jesus is in the solitary place in dependence on God. I want to suggest that Jesus is living the way of the cross before he even got to the cross. He's showing us what it looks like to live a surrendered life dependent on his Father. And church, I want to challenge us this morning that if our lives are not postured in dependence on God, can we confidently say we are moving in authority, power, and clarity of mission? This solitary moment with his father is interrupted by the disciples. Along they come, 
And what is Jesus doing out here? There's so much happening over there. There's so many needs. There's so many people. And they interrupt this moment, and there's three things that I think he's wanted, they're wanting to get Jesus' attention to. And let's just unpack them. You see, because Jesus' attention is on his Father. But they are interested in three other things. Number one is the needs of the crowd, the needs of the people. It says, everyone is looking for you. The whole town had been at his doorstep. There were so many needs. Just imagine at that time. I mean, we look around the world today. There are so many needs. But imagine a time before all of the medical advances that we have today. Even the slightest physical ailment could have been life-threatening. It's very possible that every single person had multiple physical and emotional needs. They were overwhelming and they're like pressing up and needing something from Jesus. Jesus is in the solitary place. When I moved to San Francisco 22 years ago, um, it was because God had met me at the age of 16 at this little, little youth camp thing in England. I'm not from here, you might have noticed. And I, I went to this like youth camp and this guy was preaching on a stage and God radically got a hold of my life. And I, I say that to say, don't underestimate what God can do in one moment. Like I was living in a village in England and now 22 years later, I'm still here in San Francisco. God can change everything in a moment. And he called me to San Francisco, 18, I moved to the Tenderloin. Now I had never been in America before. Uh, yeah, and I arrived in the Tenderloin, and I said to uh, my friends, I was like, is, is, this like a, is this what America is like? Like, is this, I'm genu- genuinely asking question because I've never been here before. And I remember just the whole city was like overwhelming. And I walked into Costco for the first time. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in a village where there was like a little bakery and a butcher and a flower, you know, little, little things. And I walked into Costco and I was like, Americans, what is up with y'all? Like, everything is so big. I mean, I remember I almost had a panic attack. It was like overwhelming. And what was also overwhelming were the needs of the city. I mean, I have learned to love the Tenderloin and that community and I have spent 22 years of my life serving that neighborhood. I see the creativity, I see the community, the diversity, but also tremendous need. And the needs were like right, right here as an 18-year-old. It was like, whoa, there's like literally people banging on the door with life or death situations. And I remember that overwhelming need drove me to this place of just like, we've got to do more. I've got to give more. This is not enough. Like, there's so many needs. And whether it was my own self or the organization I was working with, come on, we should, we should open more. We should serve more. We should do all of these things. And I remember someone came to me early in ministry, and they said, Ruthie, you can't be driven by the needs of the people. I was like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Do you not love Jesus? I mean, are you not a Christ follower? Because when I read the Bible, Jesus cares about the needs of the people. But you see, I had to learn something. And I think time in ministry, reading the Gospels, realizing that Jesus was moved by the needs, but he wasn't driven by the needs. 
He was moved by the needs of the people. We see it here in the scripture when the leper comes to him and falls on his knees. Jesus responds and it says he's indignant. And another way that could be translated is he felt compassion or anger, meaning that he was so angry with the result of sin and death and sickness that he was moved to heal the leper. Jesus is moved by the needs of people, but he's not driven by the needs He was moved by the need of the woman that had been bleeding for so many years. They just came and touched the hem of his garment. He was moved by the man with the withered hand, by the blind, by Zacchaeus up in a tree, lonely and isolated and outcast, moved by the needs of the people, but not driven by them. See, I think the disciples were like, What are you doing, Jesus? There's so much need here. You could do so much here. They're probably thinking what I would have been thinking, which was like, how many towns do we have to get through? How how much time do we have? Oh my gosh, the needs are so big. I gotta do more. I gotta sleep less. Like I would be driven from that kind of angst. But you see, Jesus didn't come to usher in a kingdom of scarcity, but a kingdom of abundance, He didn't come to usher in a place of like, there's not enough. I don't know what to do. Oh, we got to keep going, going, going. He came to usher in a kingdom of abundance. And there is always more than enough in a kingdom of abundance. How many of us are living reactive to the pressures and the needs around us? How many of us are just feeling overwhelmed by our social media? We're just like, oh my gosh, so much. I can't do more. Is my life really worth anything? Am I making an impact on my family, my friends? There's so much. We're just kind of driven. And you see, Jesus models for us what it looks like to be moved, but to be led by his Father, to be in that solitary place. He's like, I know what I need to do, and it's time to move on. See, the inbreaking kingdom is a kingdom of more than enough. It's a kingdom of power, authority, and clarity of mission. The disciples wanted his attention on the needs. They also wanted his attention on their expectations. See, they came to find him. It says they went to look for him, but in the Greek, it actually translates to they hunted him down. I mean, that's where they were at. They were like, there is so much need and we need a Messiah to show up here and do the thing that we need him to do. So they go and they hunt him down. And I can just imagine that frantically. Jesus, like what, what are you doing? Jesus all in his, in his place with his father, all you know, peaceful. And Jesus, we've got some things that we need from you. Like I can just imagine Peter. Jesus, maybe you have, maybe you're new to this Messiah gig. Maybe you don't know how it's supposed to roll, so let me just tell you, right? Like, Peter always has a plan for Jesus' life. We see in chapter eight, Jesus, like, walking along with them. Who do they say say I am? Who do you say I am? Peter's like that good Sunday school kid that's like, oh, me, you're the Messiah. Ding, ding, right answer. But then a few verses later, Jesus is like, okay, let me tell you what that means, I'm going to die on a cross. Whoa, Jesus. Again, maybe you don't know how this is going to go. 
But like the Messiah doesn't do that. Messiah comes in and reigns victorious, political, military power. Let me just tell you, this is, no, we've got expectations and it is not you dying. And Jesus turns and looks to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter has some expectations about who Jesus should be and how he should show up. And the reality is that Jesus will confront every idea we have about him that's not true. Jesus will confront every idea that we have about him that's not true. You see, what we think about him matters. Later in the story, Jesus heals a leper, and then he's like, don't tell anyone. That's so bizarre. I mean, we see this again and again through the book of Mark. Don't, don't tell anyone. Why? Because from their perspective, they had all these ideas of what the Messiah would do and who he'd be and how he'd show up and running around town going like, it's the Messiah, the Messiah. They didn't yet know what that meant. They didn't yet understand. They hadn't seen the Jesus hanging on the cross. They didn't get the fullness of it. And so there were all these ideas. Jesus is like, no, I don't, I don't want you to cling to false ideas about me. Church, it matters what we think about Jesus. See, some of us have expectations that if we live a certain way, we check all the boxes and do the right things, that for the most part, our life's going to be cool. It's going to be easy. We're not going to suffer. And we might not say that out loud. We're all like good Christians, so we don't actually confess to believing that, but we do sort of believe that. Like, Jesus, hang on. I've been living with you for like 10 years, and I said no to this thing and yes to that thing, and now this? This is how you repay me, Jesus? Right? Like, let's be real. We all, I mean, I do. I don't know about you. I see a few nodding heads. But let's be real. When, when the rubber hits the road and something hard happens, there is a knee-jerk reaction of like, whoa, I thought I'd signed up for something different. I thought things were going to be easier than this. I thought you promised me that relationship. I thought you promised me that my bank account would be filled up. I thought this and this and this. And we have realized we have this box and we've thought a certain thing about Jesus. And Jesus is here this morning to confront your box. To confront the things that you think that aren't accurate. We also underestimate Jesus. We underestimate the power of God. We live every day with problems and situations and we don't even think of asking for the inbreaking power and authority of the kingdom to change things. You see, what we think about him matters. I believe there's an invitation for us this morning to posture ourselves just like Jesus did in that solitary place. Dependence, surrender. God, you have it all. Not my will, but your will. The third area they wanted his attention on was the power. See, Jesus had gone viral at this point. I mean, he'd blown up. Like, this was a big moment. He had cast a demon out of someone. I mean, he had come and he had confronted the powers of darkness, and he'd actually won. I mean, he actually had power and authority over supernatural beings. Who is this guy? Hundreds coming to him to be healed, sicknesses eliminated, like Jesus had got big. This was a moment for him and he could have seized it. And I believe that the disciples with their, their wrong ideas about who the Messiah was and the kind of power that Messiah would bring, 
Like, what are you doing out here hiding? This is your moment. Like, we've got to get you in front of the crowds. We've got to get you doing your thing. We've got to parade you around. You've got to capitalize on this moment and take hold of the power. You see, Jesus realized, though, that heart change doesn't come from displays of power. It comes by the cross. Jesus wasn't looking to just wow people and entertain them like a magician so that he could gain a following. He was here to do something much more significant. If he had wanted that, he could have had that in the wilderness. When the devil showed up and said, look at all my kingdom, you can have it now. Jesus is like, nah, that's not the kind of power I came to use, to take. You see, Jesus' power comes from a place of surrender. It comes from a place of dependency. It comes from a place of leaning in and saying, God, I'll trust you to know his time and his season. Your will be done. He's not interested in emotion or frenzy or grasping or forcing. He's interested in the way of the cross, which is the way of surrender. It's the way of dependence. You see, some of us want the power. We're like, I, I want to I wanna lay hands on the sick. I want to lay hands on people with cancer and see them healed. Me too. I want to lay hands on people and literally see the demons come out and those people getting free. Me too. I want to raise the dead. I've been wanting to raise the dead since I was a kid. I'm still waiting, but it's coming. But I want to raise the dead. Yeah? I mean, that sounds awesome, right? We want that kind of power. The problem is we don't realize that it comes from the upside-down kingdom. It comes from laying down our power, our effort, surrendering to God. That's where the kingdom power is, not through force, not through trying to grasp for it and make things happen out of frustration. It comes the way of the cross. You're like, but it feels like death. That's because it is death. That's the way of the cross. It's laying down what we try to grab onto and make happen to say, God, I want to be part of this in-breaking kingdom that's rooted in trusting God. Jesus says, we're moving on. I can just imagine them all looking at each other, wondering what the heck is going on. They move on. They meet a leper. Now, this word leprosy was used in those times to cover a multitude of skin diseases. We don't know exactly what he has, and honestly, it doesn't matter because the stigma was the same. It's like, you have a skin disease, you need to be on the outside of the community. There are two chapters in Leviticus dedicated to dealing with people with skin disease. And it was like, get them away. They have to dress in like ripped clothing, and everywhere they go, they have to yell out, unclean. I'm coming through, I'm unclean, don't come near me. I mean, they were an outcast. They were cut off, cut off from family, from community. They were even cut off from God. They couldn't go into the temple. I mean, it was just like this life sentence of death. In fact, they used to refer to them as the walking dead. I mean, he's an outsider, he's on the fringes, and this is a totally hopeless situation. Back in that time, the idea of healing a leper was as miraculous as raising the dead. It was like, who's gonna do that? 
the leper comes and he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You see, leprosy actually had to be cleansed, not just healed. I mean, just think of the stigma attached to that. You're so filthy with your sickness that you've got to be, it's got to be cleansed from you. And he comes and he says to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Note that he doesn't say, if you're able. I mean, he's got a level of faith here that he is operating. It's simple, but it's, it's there. And he's like, Jesus, I know you can do this. The question is more, will you? And I can just imagine the disciples. Can you imagine Peter in this moment? Like, Jesus starts to walk towards the leper. Now, if you're a good Jewish kid, there's something you know from pretty much tiny. If you see a leper, you run. I mean, these people, they're unclean. You don't go near these people. And I can imagine Jesus beginning to walk towards the leper. And I can just imagine Peter being like, again, Jesus, you don't know what's up clearly. So we don't do this. We don't behave this way, Jesus. Like those are the outcasts. They are dirty and unclean. And Jesus just is like, he just fades out all of that. It's just him and the leper. He's walking right up to the leper. And he touches him and he heals him. No, he touched him before he healed him. Jesus didn't have to touch him. I mean, Jesus could have just walked by and been like, be healed, you know? Like we see in other parts in Scripture, he's like calming a storm with just his words. He didn't have to touch him, but he touched him. He didn't have to make a thing of it. He made a thing of it. You see, Jesus was interested in reaching that man, touching him, and saying, I know it's always been this way. I know you've always been afraid. I know that, you know, we don't normally cross this barrier and touch these people, but you see, I'm ushering in a different kind of kingdom. And I'm stepping over some of those societal walls that say, keep, keep those people. I'm stepping over and disregarding them. And he touches the leper and he's healed. And one of the things that struck me as I was reading this text was this whole idea of the leper being unable to go into the temple, being, un, being you know, disconnected from faith community was as if the leprosy had just cut him off from God. And then here comes Jesus. And I can just imagine Jesus reaching out and thinking, I know you can't get to me. I know you can't cross this divide. I know there's nothing you can do. I know that you're lonely and depressed. I know that you've been cast aside and rejected. I know the nights you've lied awake and wondered, why don't I just kill myself? I mean, I know how desperate you are and how far you think you've got to go, but let me come to you. Nothing that he did, not because he earned it, but because this is who Jesus is. He reaches out and he stretches and he says, I love you, I got you. And this is the Jesus that we follow. And this is what the in-breaking kingdom looks like. You see, in that moment, everything changed for the leper. I mean, he's so excited, he can't contain himself and he goes off telling everyone. But that's because his whole life changed. I mean, this guy, I can't just imagine him running home to mom and dad. I'm here. We can hug. 
going out to his community. Can you imagine the first time he went to go eat with people at the table and shared a meal? And then he could get a job. I mean, this guy probably never got a job and made money. I mean, he probably could have gone and got married, got a wife. I mean, that's awesome. Everything changed for this guy. And that's what the inbreaking kingdom does. It doesn't just change one little thing. Like God's desires wholeness and transformation. Church, don't settle for one answered prayer. Like, don't settle for, for one area of your life being healed or touched. Go after the fullness of the kingdom. Because God wants to bring wholeness and transformation in every single area. You see, some of you are sitting here today and you're like, well, that's cool. Seems like the kingdom is for other people. It seems like that kind of experience of God, that's for other people. That's for the people that walk in here on Sundays and they feel like they belong. I mean, they walk through the door and they go and get coffee and someone knows their name and other people hug them and they seem like they're in and then there's me. Then there's me and I just kind of walk in the back and nobody knows who I am or do they even remember me? I mean, do I really belong here? The kingdom and all of the things of the kingdom, that's great for them, but I, I don't know if that's for me. And what I think the story of the leper tells us is the power and authority of the kingdom is for every single one of us. This idea of Jesus going after the leper, pulling him in and saying, it's for all of us. There isn't the chosen few. It's for everybody. What's beautiful about this story is, you know, the leper goes off and he starts telling everyone what's happened and it just gets crazy. And so Jesus can't actually go into the towns anymore to preach and to do miracles because it's just, it's just insane. Like everyone's so excited. And so what happens is Jesus is moved out into the solitary places where people have to go out there to find him. And the leper, he's back with his community. I mean, everything is flipped here. At the beginning of the story, the leper is outcast and ashamed and alone. And Jesus is surrounded by the crowds. And then you see this little switcheroo. The leper is brought in. And Jesus has to go out. And you see, this is beautiful work by Mark because he's communicating to us the reversal that happens through the cross. See, we were once on the outside. I mean, we were once back here and we had no hope and there was nothing we could do to reach God. And Jesus says, oh, I'll come take care of that. And so he climbs on a cross and he takes the sin and the sickness and the death and all of that on himself so that we now can be brought into the family of God. Guys, this is the gospel, amen? This is the gospel. And it means that no matter how you feel today, whether you feel like you belong or you don't belong, whether your story feels like, well, I think I've been cut off or I can't come back from this, whether you think there's something about you that can't be redeemed, the truth of the gospel is there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And he's calling each one of us in this morning. Maybe you feel the shame of something in your life that just feels like it's, it's not right. Something in your story. Something that just makes you feel like you just don't quite fit. I don't know if I'll ever fit in this church community because of fill in the blank. I used to fit when I was a kid and then I had all these years and all these things happened and 
And now I'm just not sure if I really fit. If that's you here today, and Jesus says you belong, and he reaches out to you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I have these expectations of Jesus and he is just not living up to them. I mean, I have been waiting on him for this thing in my life, for this relationship, for this breakthrough, for this healing, for this financial provision, and I have not seen it yet. And so maybe you found yourself postured in a place of disappointment and cynicism. And you're kind of withholding, God, when I see you do this, then you can have my life. And I believe the invitation this morning is to give him your life. It's to say, Jesus, I give you everything. I'm not gonna keep holding back because you know the thing is, when we think we're taking God hostage, there's actually only one person that's captive and that is us. We think we're holding God like, come on God, you gotta come through, I've got expectations. And all the time we're just like wrapped up in captivity ourselves because the way of surrender and dependence is the way of freedom and power and authority and the inbreaking kingdom.